welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. This is Patrick Rao, NGI's Director of Strategy and Research. Today is my usual quarterly review of the most frequently discussed and asked about topics during third quarter 2023 earnings conference calls for publicly traded companies in the North American natural gas value chain. Thanks for joining us today, and we'd especially like to welcome our international listeners who continue to grow in number. Now, as the title of today's podcast suggests, I'm going to be discussing M&A, LNG, and the early outlook for 2024 U.S. natural gas production. But before I start, I'd like to just really quickly welcome two new members to the NGI team, Jody Shafto and Chris Newman. Jody and Chris are both accomplished commodity industry veterans with experience and expertise in the power markets, and we believe this will help differentiate their coverage of the North American natural gas industry. Those of you who subscribe to NGI's various services can follow Jody, Chris, and all of our thought leaders. And you non-subscribers can do the same by contacting us at sales at naturalgasintel.com to request a free trial to any of our various services, the descriptions of which you can find on our website at www.naturalgasintel.com. Okay, let's dive in by getting started into the topic du jour this quarter, which was M&A activity and really more specifically, mega M&A activity. Things got going just prior to the start of earnings when ExxonMobil announced on October the 11th that it would pay $60 billion to acquire Pioneer Resources. And just 12 days later, Chevron revealed its plans to acquire Hess for $53 billion. When asked about the merger, John Hess revealed that he and Chevron CEO Mike Worth had been talking about it for maybe a couple of years, but that the pricing never worked. Then quoted, now the pricing works. That was John Hess. Hey, and who knows, maybe the Exxon deal helped make the pricing work. But the deal just didn't emerge from the ashes in the immediate wake from the Exxon Pioneer deal. Anyway, these large transactions have harkened thoughts back to the late 1990s and early 2000s when Exxon merged with Mobil, BP with Amoco, and Chevron with Texaco. Exxon Mobil and Chevron were involved then. And here they are evolved again now today. Now, the investor community, it's certainly a buzz about the next wave of mergers. And seemingly every single U.S.-based oil and gas producer was asked by the sell-side analyst community about their views on the subject in the hopes of determining whether the Exxon Pioneer and Chevron Hess deals will unleash the next wave of M&A activity. When we at NGI, we believe we've yet to see the last of these mega-sized deals both upstream and even midstream, but we're not so sure that these are going to happen quite as quickly as some may think, especially in the EMP space. So more on that in a moment. But uh, let's talk about these two deals in particular. What do these two large deals have in common? Well, number one, they focused on oil. Hess's production in offshore Guiana, the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, and the Bakken Shale. While I know that two separate buy-side investors who believe Pioneer's position in the Permian's Midland Basin, it's among the best acreage in all the United States. Now, that might be a bit of a matter of conjecture, but what I can say much more confidently 
There's almost no one drills any of those wells in any of those areas primarily for natural gas. As our name, Natural Gas Intelligence, suggests, we focus on natural gas. And I promise you that's still the central theme of my discussion today. But nevertheless, at least for these two deals, oil is the key driver. Number two is, unlike at the turn of the century, when crude oil prices were in the gutter, and the mega deals I mentioned before were driven primarily by cost energies, we believe that these two transactions, along with others in the foreseeable future, those would be more motivated by replenishing long-term inventories, especially now that publicly traded U.S. E&P producers are focused on returning more cash to their shareholders. The better the drilling inventory, the better the ability to raise a dividend buyback shares. Both sets of acquiring and acquired producers in these deals are also what I'll call energy mega cap names, which I'll define for purposes here as those with a market capitalization of at least $30 billion US. Now, these deals, they really needed to be large in order to make a material difference for Exxon and Chevron, both of whom who have market caps in excess of $250 billion. Hey, they can still do smaller ones, and both of them actually have this year. PDC Energy, and Denbury. But to large-sized companies, buying smaller names, buying smaller market cap names, this is more like a bolt-on asset transaction in many ways. Hey, they're, they're, they're certainly nice, but they don't typically move the needle all that much. So as a result, we believe that deals involving the smaller cap EMP names in the U.S., those are more likely to happen among each other in our view. Now, Another thing common about these deals is that all the companies that were involved, they were U.S.-based. And that, to us, really just goes to underscore the notion that U.S. majors are still very much more willing to take investments in crude oil than their European counterparts. And finally, technology was at the forefront of the value proposition for these deals, particularly for the Exxon-Pioneer combination. As Liberty Energy CEO Chris Wright said, Exxon is a, quote, technological powerhouse, unquote. And how is this for a bit of evidence for that? Exxon spent $824 million on research and development in 2022. And that's a figure that's comparable to what Schlumberger, or SLB now, and Halliburton spent in 2022 combined. That's pretty darn impressive, folks. Last October... We note that Exxon's management indicated that both they and Pioneer drilled 100% cubes in the Midland Basin in 2022. Yet the recoveries were the same. Exxon's recoveries were the same as those from PXDs, Pioneers, despite having inferior acreage. So the thinking goes that if you apply Exxon's current and future technologies to Pioneer's acreage, Exxon believes they could extract 20% more oil from those Pioneer properties going forward. So what is this magical cube technology, you ask? Well, no one outside the circle really seems to know, as a number of companies would ask about it during the third quarter calls, couldn't really comment, and it's not because they didn't want to. Cotera Energy CEO Tom Jordan, he was even more direct. Quote, I wish I could tell you that we had some back laboratory where we have our own version of it, but we don't. We're watching very carefully. We certainly hope it's true, but we don't see evidence that it's been field-tested yet in any meaningful way, unquote. Now, materially greater oil recoveries are significant for several reasons. Number one, well, there really aren't any secrets in the oil patch. 
So assuming Exxon is successful at deploying this technology on a larger scale, others will likely follow suit, thus potentially pushing out the inevitable production plateau date from the region. And more importantly for you natural gas fans out there, all that extra associated gas production could wreak havoc with Ford, with Ford basis differentials and create a call, more of a call rather, for natural gas pipeline takeaway. Now, I'm sure potential LNG players of the Gulf Coast and even Mexico as well are quite interested in this development. One other thought is that uh, increased recoveries it could also help permanent producers stretch out their inventories. And that's certainly something that remains top of mind for investors. Okay, that was a lot I know. Uh, back to center here. So what about the other mega cap U.S. producers? What might they do in terms of M&A? Now, look, we at NGI, we're not going to make any predictions. It's not what we do. But allow me to share comments made by the large cap U.S. producers themselves regarding M&A during their third quarter conference calls. To do that, we'll start with ConocoPhillips, market cap of about $137 billion. They actually launched right into M&A commentary. And the message was that they have a very high bar with respect to M&A and cited high grading their own portfolio the last few years including acquiring the remaining 50% of the Sermont properties in early October. Remember also, they just acquired Shell's permanent assets in 2021 for $9.5 billion, so not an insignificant splash there. Moreover, when asked about the two October mega deals, Conoco CEO Ryan Lance explained, quote, transactions were in the part of the cycle that's a little frothy and probably at a higher mid-cycle price than we would ascribe to them, unquote. In other words... We're not interested in buying at these high prices. How about EOG Energy? Market cap, $72 billion. Well, they have a deep drilling inventory already. And we believe that they're far more known for acquiring assets instead of companies. Okay, so if that's true, maybe EOG's not necessarily a prime candidate. What about Occidental Petroleum? $54 billion market cap. After all, they did a mega deal with Anadarko back in 2019, so they have some precedent for this sort of thing. But management indicated they don't have to do any acquisitions at this time. They are keeping tabs on things, yes, but they stress they don't have to do anything at the moment. That leaves two more. There are a couple of $29 billion market cap companies, so you know, a little outside of the $30 billion threshold, I said. But there's Debit Energy, and they simply said that buying back shares is more beneficial at M&A right now. And lastly, there's Diamondback Energy. And although this is a company that was built on M&A, management there said they have such a deep level of inventory that the bar is pretty high to match that. So look, now, things can certainly change over time. And no one from these companies would ever comment on any deals that may be in the works. But based on these responses, it doesn't really seem like other U.S. energy megacap producers are in much of a hurry to do anything right now, now does it? at least in terms of their being the acquirer. And any conjecture about their being acquired would be just that at this point, conjecture. Okay, so what about the European energy megacap producers? Might they want to get involved in these megacap EMP deals? Well, we certainly don't think it's very likely for any transactions centered around oil, given how much more invested these European names are in renewables and energy transition. But here's a thought. What about large acquisitions centered around U.S. natural gas, especially among those European majors that also have sizable global LNG portfolio businesses? 
We note that Kingdom Morgan themselves noted on its uh, third quarter 2023 call that many LNG exporters are interested in natural gas farther upstream to access more competitively priced and diversified supply. And one potential way to do that, buy a gas producer. So let's quickly run down the list of potential European mega cap candidates. Now, the obvious one is Shell. That's a $216 billion market cap firm, a colossal, and they are one of the world's largest LNG portfolio players. During their June Capital Markets Day, they let off by extolling how committed they are to natural gas with a focus on LNG growth. Their new CEO actually came from their LNG business. Now, Shell doesn't have much of a production presence in the United States anymore, particularly on the gas side, and particularly after they sold their lucrative permanent acreage back in 2021. As such, one of the U.S. producers of size may be attractive to them, provided, of course, that that U.S. producer can transport natural gas to the Gulf Coast, where we believe Shell has offtake capacity. How about Total Energies? They often mention that they're the leading exporter of LNG out of the United States. But they also said they have a deep portfolio of oil and gas assets, and they don't feel like they need to add to that by M&A. We do note that they have offtake interest in two Mexico LNG terminals, which would increase their pull of natural gas, though. So might acquiring some more U.S. upstream gas exposure appeal to them, even if it brought with it some more oil? That's a good question to ponder. There's BP, about $100 billion market cap. Their overall strategy of transitioning to an integrated energy company, it's unchanged. Net-net, they plan to grow oil and gas production at their U.S. affiliate BPX Energy, which has a heavy concentration of its total acreage in the Hinesville Shale, I might add, by a 10% CAGR between 2023 and 2030. Management noted on the third quarter BP call that they don't feel they need more acreage. However, they will consider countercyclical opportunities and may even pursue those. But they are very happy with their U.S. position and plan to develop that organically. M&A doesn't really seem to be top of their minds right now, to be honest. But we also have Equinor, also about a hundred billion dollar market cap, and they essentially said that they're looking at M&A. Excuse me, they're looking at M&A. But companies of this size, they're always looking at M&A, and they've made no indications they would target U.S. assets. So. While we don't know which, if any, of these candidates are actively pursuing this idea of acquiring U.S. gas or U.S. producers, doing so could diversify their supply and potentially backstop future involvement by these names in new and expanded U.S. LNG export capacity, all while advancing their goals to grow their overall gas businesses. Now, do they have the balance sheets to do something like this? You bet they do. Absolutely. Exxon and Chevron both have long-term debt ratings of AA-. Shell, Total, and Ecuador, they're all right there. While BP, they still have a very respectable A rating. So they certainly all have the wherewithal to finance such deals. Again, European megas acquiring smaller cap U.S. gas producers is something that we at NGI we're not predicting will necessarily happen. But the idea, it certainly has its merits, and it's something to keep an eye on at any rate. All right, so if the European energy mega caps don't take the plunge on gaseous names, might they look to dance with each other? Well, that's certainly a possibility. But there's been quite a bit of consolidation in the lower 48 gas bases already in recent years in an effort to gain scale. 
But as we said at the outset, we believe more M&A activity will follow to help grow drilling inventories. Some mergers may also be motivated by balance sheet repair. So believe it or not, most of the top publicly traded gas-focused producers in the United States have non-investment debt ratings. So the idea of theirs getting together to improve the balance sheet might be one that holds merit. Now, once again, things can change. Never say never. And insert your favorite cliche here. But when asked about M&A, all the gassy names said some variation of the following answer, and that is that they're more focused on developing their existing inventories rather than looking to grow it organically. They won't say no to the right deal, of course, but they may not be in such a hurry to make that happen. Okay, on to topic number two, which is our takeaways from third quarter 23 earnings calls about US LNG. Now, that last discussion about the potential for European producers being interested in US gas works the other way around, too as U.S. producers are looking to sell more of their production based on international price indexes. Just taking a quick look here at AGI's quarterly list of the largest U.S. publicly traded natural gas producers, and the vast majority of the top 10, and let's even call the top 13, have either signed deals to sell gas at either TTF or Asian price indexes or are in discussions of doing so. Number three overall U.S. gas producer Chesapeake Energy is on record as saying they're targeting up to 20% of their net production being tied to international prices. The common element of the deal signed so far is that they are being done free on board, FOB, where title transfer to the cargoes takes place at the various U.S. export facilities. Chesapeake Energy made the argument that the players in the international LNG market may tend to be very large. And we'll add that U.S. gas-focused producers probably don't have the expertise in maritime shipping anyway, so it behooves them not to take the extra risk of delivering cargoes themselves. We certainly get why U.S. producers are motivated to increase their international exposure, considering the current 2024 through 2020 strips for TTM and Asia average $14.75 and $14 per MMBTU, respectively, more than about three and a half times NGI's average Henry Hub Ford curve for that same time period. But just keep in mind that as a result of selling FOB, producers will not receive 100% of those international price indexes as they would if they were to sell it delivered X ship or by delivering the cargoes to customers internationally. By selling gas FOB, essentially U.S. producers are receiving a net back deal, which is the relevant international index, less things like shipping, fuel, and tolling slash liquefaction costs. Now, we at NGI actually publish estimated Gulf of Mexico LNG net back prices each day in our nascent NGI's LNG Insight publication. And according to that, the GM net back price is currently $13.67 per MMBTU. Compare that to NGI's daily gas price index spot market price of $2.64 for the Henry Hub, and you see the big, big difference there. But there's always a chance that net back spreads like this, or international prices versus Henry Hub, can turn negative. And that introduces a new kind of risk that at this point may be difficult to address. To that point, Southwestern Energy's management opine that is currently structured Many of the international price domestic gas supply deals, quote, push most, if not all, of the risk onto the upstream gas supplier, unquote. As such, they intend to gain international price exposure when those risks become more balanced and when we have what they term the necessary tools to manage their exposure. 
I should add my colleague, Jameson Cochlin, released a podcast earlier this week that addresses this topic. So I'd encourage all of you interested to give that a listen as well. Here's another LNG takeaway. Chesapeake continues to show how to get around selling LNG fee gas without having an investment-grade debt rating. Such a requirement is a staple for Chenier's integrated production management netback deals. Chesapeake has now entered into two separate deals with trading houses, despite having a sub-investment-grade debt rating. They've done one with Gunvor and now a second with VTOL. Most of the gas-focused U.S. EMPs are junk-rated. So this could be an interesting avenue for them to gain more international price exposure and lessen the possibility they get shut out of the international market while waiting to achieve investment-grade status. Just contact more with the international trading houses to the extent they're willing to do so. Now, overall, these international price deals do provide risk diversification benefits for U.S. producers. As long as two assets are not perfectly correlated from a statistical standpoint, then adding the second to a portfolio of the first will add statistical diversification benefits, or so goes modern portfolio theory. According to our calculations, Henry Hub and Asian natural gas prices had a correlation coefficient of just 0.24 in 2018, but have ranged between 0.76 and 0.783 of the last four years, including so far in 2023. Similarly, Henry Hub had a correlation coefficient with TTF gas prices of just 0.32 back in 2018, but that ranged at either side of 0.8 before slipping back below 0.6 these last two years. Still, the overall trend is up, and that will likely continue to climb higher as the United States become even more integrated to the global gas market via more LNG exports in the coming years. But statistically speaking, and even at these elevated correlations, we believe that adding more deals tied to TTF and Asian prices will indeed provide at least some diversification while also expanding their potential expected realized production prices going forward. I'd also like to note that the pace of construction on North American natural gas projects seems to be going very well. Several analysts noted that Plaquemines and Golden Pass are progressing ahead of schedule, or at least more quickly than they had been anticipating. And that could mean that the start of feed gas for those facilities begins earlier in 2024 than previously expected. These pundits feel the same about LNG Canada and expect that facility to spend much of 2024 in the commissioning phase especially now that the construction on the connecting Coastal Link pipeline has been completed and is close to being put in service. This would put pressure on U.S. producers to ramp production even faster in order to meet expected LNG-based natural gas demand all the earlier. And this brings me to our third and final topic for today, expected 2024 U.S. natural gas producer activity. For 2023, we know said activity is down. The current total active U.S. rig count stands at 616, down 21% from the start of the year. Gas-focused rigs are down by 38, or 24% for the year, and most of that has been in the Haynesville, where the overpressured nature of the play leads to higher decline rates, which in turn causes more rapid depletion in basin production, everything else being equal. The point being is dropping rigs in a faster decline basin creates a greater impact on overall gas production. Now, back in August, I recorded a podcast entitled U.S. Natural Gas Activity Hasn't Bottomed Yet, But Will Need To Soon, where I discussed the need for U.S. drillers to step up their activity in order to meet rising LNG exports out of the U.S. within the next 12 to 20, it's going to be 12 to 18 months. And my views from that, 
are still unchanged. Breakouts really have to rise from here in the coming months, especially since overall U.S. duck counts or drilled but uncompleted well counts are at historically low levels. Wall Street seems to be of a similar mindset. It's still too early for EMP companies to reveal their activity plans for 2024, and oil field service provider Halliburton even said they don't have those figures from their customers just yet. However, Wall Street gives us a bit of a clue. Sell-side analysts expect CapEx among U.S.-focused independent producers to rise just 1.4% to 2024 year-over-year. But that's a bit misleading in terms of its potential impact on production. For one, the consensus among producers is that they expect oil field service costs to decline by 5% next year. But they also by and large believe that the increased pace of drilling and completion efficiency gains seen this past quarter will extend into next year. Producers are simply going to be able to produce more with less. Now, given all that, we calculate that Wall Street is predicting publicly traded independent companies will increase their U.S. production by 4.5% in 2024. Now, that's still within the 0% to 5% band that we believe defines maintenance mode among the publicly traded producers. But clearly, these producers would be pushing the upper boundary of that band based on this forecast. And with crude oil pricing much improved lately, we believe private producers are looking to increase their activity levels as well, which would help contribute to the overall natural gas kitty. So to us, the question isn't really whether producers will add more rigs. It's more a matter of when and how quickly. The good news is, is all the major oil field service providers have opined that the U.S. rig count is either nearing a bottom or has reached that bottom level already. But the falling rigs from this year should translate to lower production momentum going into 2024, which will just ramp up the pressure to begin deploying more rigs sooner than later. So when might the inflection point happen? Well, probably not before the end of the year, considering the fourth quarter is typically seasonally weaker because of weather, holidays, budget exhaustion. And now this year, you've got the fact that cycle times have improved so much this year that some producers simply, they've met their planned drilling completion activity for the year earlier than expected and have little else to do until budgets refresh, excuse me, until budgets refresh after the end of the year. So that will likely help contribute to a delay in the supply response. Now, neighbors drilling, they helped give us another clue. Each quarter, they serve their largest customers in lower 48 states, who right now happen to account for a bit less than half of all operating rigs in the lower 48. They ask them what their plans are going forward, and their survey indicates this group will add about 6% to its rig count through early 2024. Okay, so if we apply that 6% to the overall current U.S. rig count, That would be a 37-rig increase, likely the weeks immediately after December 31st. And that would certainly be a very good start. But maybe only half the total rigs needed, according to several industry pundits. So, if that's true, there would be a second swath needed, and when might that next wave hit? When might that increase of wave uh, rigs hit? Well, let's go back to that shorter cycle times observation from a minute ago. Shorter cycle times mean U.S. producers now have more time they can wait to start drilling new wells 
Thanks to some heavy improvements in drilling completion activities reported during the quarter that have helped to reduce spud to in-cycle cycle times for producers greatly. Now, we're talking about things like increased pup hours per frack day, tribal fracking, or completing three wells at once, and the emergence of three-mile laterals. And I mean, geez, the industry has even started drilling a few four-mile wells in certain places. To this end, Chesapeake noted that they drilled four of the fastest 10 Marcellus wells in their history in just the third quarter alone, and several of their peers have had similar comments. Point being, four years ago, we believed those cycle times in the gassy areas were more like nine months, but today they're down around six months, in no small part because of the developments I just mentioned. But even with a shorter six-month lead time, we don't believe producers can wait much past the second quarter of next year for material step change in drilling activity in order to serve the forthcoming needs of increased LNG exports. So let's call that no later than July the 1st. But it'll be sooner, and quite possibly much sooner than that, if the U.S. has a colder than normal winter this year. Now, the lower 48 U.S. still has a storage overhang of nearly 300 BCF versus last year and 200 Bs versus the previous five-year average. But we know that LNG export facilities are ramping closer to full throttle now that they've gone through planned maintenance season, and U.S. gas-fired power burn continues to be robust. Moreover, we should have a full winter from Freeport LNG this time around. Last winter... They went more than 100 days without shipping a cargo. More loosey-goosey back the off the map here, 100 days times 2 BCF a day of lost feed gas equaled 200 BCF that went back into the supply pool last year that won't happen or shouldn't happen this year. Point being is that we believe the United States needs a bit of an extra storage buffer going into this winter for the things I just mentioned. So we, in fact, have effectively less gas going to winter this year than the figures I just cited may indicate. Given this backdrop, we believe a colder-than-normal winter could complete the picture and go a long way towards eradicating the stored surplus, in our view. But, there's always a but, right? But as our Jeremiah Shuler wrote last week, more impressive cold for the lower 48 might not materialize until late November at the earliest, which could mean, quote, bearish weather headwinds, unquote, for the natural gas market until then. So maybe this ends up giving producers a bit more time to add that second swath of rigs. But of course, it's still way too early to write off winter just yet. Now, these trends, these supply-demand trends I mentioned, these are exactly the type of things that Jeremiah Letty Gonzalez, Kevin Dobbs, and now Jody Shafto and Chris Newman, whom you met earlier in our call. These are things that they follow in their daily coverage at NGI, and we invite you to follow along. Again, for more information, please go to our website at www.naturalgasintel.com. That'll do it for today. On behalf of everyone at Natural Gas Intelligence, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving to all our U.S. friends and a warm and safe start to the holiday season to you all. Until next time, take care. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services 
understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.